0: now welcome to the cattoons podcast i'm your host katherine corelli On this podcast, I'm going to talk about the stories behind my songs, the production tools that I've used, the production methods that I've employed, the instruments that I've played, the instruments that I've discovered, the arrangement methods that I've used, the real-life stories which precipitated the creation of my entire albums or of my separate tracks. So let's jump right into it, shall we? And welcome you listening to the fifth episode of my Cat podcast, today we're going to be talking about a rather melancholic song called Sort Out, which is the fifth track from the I Tell You What album. I'm recording this episode out of my office, so probably you might hear a hint of my cooler working in my laptop because I'm sitting right in front of my laptop, but I'm thinking that when it gets a little warmer and it's probably going to get warmer pretty damn soon here in Kentucky, I think I will start recording these episodes on my back porch out in the open, so probably you will hear some more ambient sounds in the back, which I think is going to be pretty damn cute. Anyways, so getting back to the song, Sort Out. Sort Out was written... The original Sort Out was written back in spring 2008, and that goes exactly to the times that I've described on my previous Episodes we're talking about the I tell you what album and just like blue grin just like I tell you what and fixing kiss Sort Out" was sort of written in that time frame in early March or late February 2008 sort out. I don't exactly remember What date was that when that melody popped in my mind, but I do distinctly remember that evening I was living at my old grandfather's place My grandfather just passed away. So I was occupying his room, and I was living in that place for two months. I had nowhere to live, and I've asked... I called my Aunt Laura. Aunt Laura was my mother's elder sister. My mother passed away just a few months ago. Then her father, my grandfather, he passed away in January 2008. It was a very weird time. and. I was somewhere in between. You know, guys, I was talking about this in my previous episodes, back in those days I was moving around a lot, I was moving from place to place. I was basically homeless, so when I ran out of options and I had nowhere else to go and I needed to somehow get through this, uh, to regroup and find a new place, I've called my aunt Lauren and it just happened so she informed me that my grandfather just passed away nine days ago, and then I moved in quickly, and I think that was in March, in March 2008 probably, and she gave me that room, my grandfather's room, which I remembered from the time since I was like, I don't know, three years old, four, five maybe, it's such a weird feeling to not have my grandfather there anymore, and I didn't even have a chance to meet him. I didn't see him actually at that point for years, I don't know, maybe for two or three years, And my grandfather was a huge inspiration to me, and he was a father figure for me when I was little. My mom used to take me to my grandfather's when I was very little, and she did this only with me. She didn't do this with my other siblings. But when I was the single kid, at the time when I still didn't have any brothers, she would sometimes take me on a trip to grandfathers, and it would be just me and mom and my granddad. My father, he didn't like to go on those trips. I guess my mom was taking a break from my dad or something. I don't know. But anyways, I remember that time very vaguely from my early childhood. And then, all of a sudden, I come here and I'm undergoing major changes because I've embarked on my transition, I'm on a new journey, I look different. My mom had just passed away a few months ago. My grandfather just passed away and I didn't even have a chance to say goodbye to him or even hear his voice. Here I am. and So I've arrived to this apartment, and um, it was an evening, somewhere in March, or late February, I don't really remember, late February 2008 probably. And my aunt, she opens the door and she looks at me, and I've arrived, even though I had nowhere to live, essentially, I was really hung up on trying to look really cool and trying to look very attractive and um, not flashy not really flashy but I was trying to look gorgeous because I wanted to look gorgeous because hey hello I'm a girl I'm supposed to so regardless of the circumstances sort of there was this saying I don't remember who said this about that the tougher the times get the more gorgeous the woman (laughs) the more gorgeous the woman is trying to look like basically that's the gist of it so My aunt opens the door and she sees something that she doesn't expect to see because she didn't see me for a while, too. Like, probably for maybe a couple of years. And in this time, I've already started my transition, so I've changed. And I haven't been into my transition for long enough, really. However, the changes started to show and I was dressed not like she would expect me to be dressed. So, my friend, he drove me to that place with my possessions I didn't have a lot of possessions, really, but I had some. My friend drove me in a car to that apartment to that end of the city. It was in the evening, he left me there. I got all of it upstairs, that building had no elevator there. So, it was a tough trip up to the fifth story on the foot, with all of these bags and my computer, my old tower computer. And so, my aunt opens the door and there's, there's me, and I'm wearing over-the-knee boots. It's cold in Moscow, because it's just early spring, I'm guessing. So, it's still icy, it's snowy, it's windy, it's somewhat frosty. So, there I am in my Italian over-the-knee boots, somewhat around four and something-inch high heel on those boots, so it's really difficult to walk in these boots, mind you. A miniskirt, a black miniskirt, and you can't really see a lot of my legs, but they're there, let's put it this way a black coat, a black short coat, some leopard themed top, and black hair, because back then I was dyeing my hair black. I just liked it that way. And wearing some makeup, obviously. Of course, I was wearing some makeup, and it wasn't anything flashy or anything overdone. No, it was just, you know, some eyeliner. I had some mascara on. I had very cute eyelashes, and I had some glitter, or something like this. So all in all, I, I looked pretty damn cute, my nails were done. You know, probably when you look at someone like that, you would never tell that this individual essentially has nowhere to live. My aunt, she was really surprised, and she just stood there for a while, and she's like, wow, like you've, you've changed so much. What happened? And then of course, I had to go to the kitchen with her, sit down, have a cup of tea, and start a conversation, basically come out to my aunt because she had no clue that this is going on because my family wouldn't disclose anything and they wouldn't talk about this. So, it turned out to be an absolute surprise. So, we sat in the kitchen and we chatted for like a couple of hours and I tried to explain myself. I tried to explain what am I going through and what is it like. And um, she just sat there and gazed at me and she compared me to my mom, to her younger sister. And that was a very bizarre feeling, it was a really bizarre feeling, because I sort of felt like... It's strange. On one hand, I didn't want to do anything with my mom, because I was so... I I felt so sorry for her that she passed away at the age of 51, and that she she didn't get any further in life, that cancer killed her, and I guess she was so exhausted with life, with her work, and with this disease, and then she couldn't fight it, or perhaps she didn't want to fight it. So I felt really, really sorry for her, and I was, I was grieving her loss a lot. So on one hand, I didn't want to do anything with my mom anymore. Not that I hated her, no. That's, that's not what, what was going on. I just felt that that is the kind of path that I should never take, that I should avoid my mom's fate at all costs, that I should be something entirely different. But at the same time, some other part of me was in there, and I felt proud that I'm my mom's girl, that I look like her, that I sound like her, that I have mannerisms like her. And there is her elder sister, Aunt Laura, who is sitting there and telling me that I look like her, actually, that I behave like her. And I'm not asking for any compliments or anything along those lines, but she's telling me that straight out. And it's like the little things, you know. Then we go to unpack my possessions and I'm asking for, like, do you have a wardrobe here? And she points me towards that old grandpa's wardrobe in his room. And she basically assigns me that room and tells me, hey, you're going to live here. And I'm like, fine, great, good with me. And she she opens that wardrobe and she um, cleans up the shelves. And she basically tells me, well, you can you can use it. And I started to unpack my possessions, and there is a few pairs of shoes, boots, fancy high-heel stuff. I didn't wear dresses back then, but I had like coats and jackets and tops and lingerie and jeans of all kinds. I had several pairs of jeans, gosh. All sorts of clothing, all sorts of clothing. And some of it was really top-notch stuff. And she looks at all of this, and she looks at me, and how busy I am unpacking all of this clothing and footwear and she's like, well, you're just like your mom. Your mom used to be a fashionist. And I'm like, I can see from you, dear aunt, that that you were envious of my mom. Because let's be honest, my aunt, she wasn't as pretty as my mom was. My mom was the middle sister. There were three of them. There was Aunt Laura, there was my mom, and then there was the younger sister, Aunt Rita. And, My mom, whose name was Natalie, and her younger sister, Aunt Rita, they were the troublemakers. And they were two pretty girls that were getting themselves into trouble once in a while. They had high grades, though. They were gorgeous. They were adored and admired by guys all the time. Mom was basically my mom. She was like the center of attention, you know, guys were after her all the time. And my mom she was she was also a very classy girl. And she loved to party with guys back when she was when she was a teenager, when she was in her twenties. Like nothing horrible, but whenever there was an opportunity to hang out and have fun, my mom would do it. And I don't see a problem with that really, but it appears that at the time when I moved in to <laughs> when my aunt graciously provided me a place to live, it appeared to me, for the first time perhaps in my whole life, that my aunt actually was envious of my mother. Probably that is because my aunt didn't have the looks of my mom, she wasn't as pretty, she wasn't as gorgeous, she wasn't as cute, there was a difference. And I've sensed that, and at some point I had to tell my aunt that with all due respect I don't want to listen throughout the night denigrating stories about my mother. I find it inappropriate because my mother had died just recently, and you're basically telling me that she was an airhead when she was younger. And while I do appreciate all the stories, and I do appreciate the detail and, you know, the stories that I've never heard before when I was growing up when I was a little kid, but. I find it somewhat inappropriate, and I don't exactly like that attitude towards my mother. So, she sort of, you know, wrapped it up, and she didn't go any further, and there wasn't anything aggressive or anything of that kind. However, I felt that there was sort of like a cloud hanging over me, and for those two months that I've lived in that place, I felt it all the time. Like, my aunt and her three kids, they were looking at me, and they were like, ah, she is from this other family. She is from Natalie's family. You know what I'm saying? And they were looking, they were watching me closely. They were watching me really closely. And then they sort of, they were, they were keeping to themselves. I've always perceived them as a strange family, with strange kids. And they were sort of keeping to themselves. That's That would be the correct term, I think. They weren't cute. They weren't very outgoing. They weren't as a family and as, you know, Each one of them weren't extroverted. You know, maybe that's just me. I don't know. I probably have my bias because I was proud of my mom and I love my mom. So, to me, this branch of the family seemed like they're just different and strange and uh, just like people from a different planet, you know what I'm saying? So, I was closely watched and, um, oh god, they were discussing me. Oh god, they were discussing my character and all of those things when guys were coming to see me. And it's not that I was partying or drinking or making noises or anything like that. No, I wasn't. I understood very well that I don't want to annoy these people. I knew that they're not very social, that they're not very much used to like some social life going on. I was already putting pressure on them because at the time I was making a living coaching students. I was teaching the music theory and vocals for the most part. So, I didn't want to annoy anybody in this apartment, which wasn't my territory, I didn't want to annoy them too much, because I didn't want to get kicked out of here. So, I did what I needed to do in terms of my work, and I felt that that is just enough, and that I really cannot invite anybody. I've invited three guys, at a different time, and all in all, it was like probably, I don't know, a dozen of visits, counting all of these guys. And then there was a friend that came to see me once, and then there was one brother that came to see me, and another brother that came to see me. So, I tried really not to annoy these people. However, I felt that there was like a dark cloud hanging over me, especially after my cousins, they've seen me kissing a guy in the stairwell where I would get out and smoke. Of course I was sexually active, of course I was into guys, of course I was dating. Of course that was happening, so I absolutely wasn't willing to cut that out absolutely for the time being, because, well, life continues. And while on one hand I didn't want to get kicked out into the street, on the other hand, I felt like, you know what, life goes on. I'm eager about my life, I'm eager about romance, it's spring, so... Why the heck should I absolutely not see anybody? Of course I would see someone. Getting back to Sort Out, I sort of laid out this background for you because Sort Out was born out of these circumstances. Sort Out, while it doesn't directly imply anything about my grandfather, whom I loved dearly, and I love him dearly to this day, and miss him a lot. While Sort Out doesn't directly connect to him or to my mom and it is not specifically about some boyfriend that I had, some guy that I was seeing at the time, or like a particular crush or something like this. It is generally speaking about about life. It was a reflection, a self-reflection on life. Quite often while I lived there, late at night, like after midnight, I would get out for a smoke and I was smoking six back then and I would get out into the stairwell and I would open the window and I would smoke into the window and I would sniff the spring night air and it was still, as I said, it's Moscow so you still have frosty nights, you still have windy nights, it's cold, but sometimes the nights are getting a little warmer and you can just bend over the windowsill, open the window and you can smoke and watch the smoke disappear into the dark and you're watching the street lights, and the inner yard, and the trees, and the wet droplets of water all around the place, and tapping from the roof. I've always felt that a setting like this is very thought-provoking. It's very romantic on one hand, on the other hand, it's very thought-provoking. And it always urged me for some sort of creative activity, or like, philosophical thinking, if you know what I'm saying. So, quite often I would get out like that, and I would smoke after midnight, with an open window. And I would be probably working on something at the same time. I would be working on some song, on some music that I had. And that particular evening, as far as I remember, I came back after a date. And I was really thinking about my life. I was really thinking, what are my chances in this life? How far am I going to get? Am I ever going to be successful as a musician? Am I ever going to be successful as a woman? Do I have any chances at all in this life? And in this country, because back then I was in Russia, I was thinking to myself, in this big city, what do I have? I really don't have nothing. Nothing at all. I don't have a home, I don't know what the future holds for me, and I don't know what the next month holds for me. I don't know nothing, basically. I'm just in the beginning of my transition, I'm not as attractive as I wish I was, even though I was cute. There is really little hope that I will find a man with whom I could bond, who would want to bond with me, who would want to contend with me, with whom I could build something, because we're talking Russia, and that means that you can't really get married. If you're a trans woman, you can't really get married in that country. But I wanted, I wanted to find someone, I wanted to build a normal life. I wanted to have a husband, I wanted to date, yes, I wanted to have fun, yes, I wanted to explore, but ultimately, I wanted to find my love, I wanted to have a family, and I wanted to make it great. I wanted to do it right. So quite often I would stand there and I would sort of think about these things and on one hand it would sadden me a lot because I would wonder to myself that, you know what, probably my chances aren't very high. But on the other hand, I would have hopes and I wouldn't be able to dump my hopes altogether and uh, all I could do at the time was I would just listen to my heart and I would listen to my mind and um, some music would emerge out of these thoughts and then I would end up writing new songs. So, I remember I went back into the apartment and I wanted to snack on something and probably the only thing that I had for dinner was raviolis with mayo. Back then, then that was a popular dish that I have indulged in quite often for lack of any better food. So, I was cooking raviolis and then I just heard this melody for Sort Out, this hook melody. It's so simple, It was so sad, I was sort of sad in my heart. And I was thinking about this guy that I was dating and I knew that it's sort of, it's not gonna last. Like, there is not gonna be any big future or anything like that, so I probably should take it easy and sort of prepare myself to the idea that, well, we're probably just gonna see each other. And there ain't not gonna be no real continuation to that. So while I was in these thoughts, I was cooking raviolis. I was really hungry, and this melody popped in my mind, the melody for Sort Out. And actually, with that melody, quite quickly, the first words have shown up. And the first words here in the hook are Take haste, sort out your life before erased. And then the following two lines, they just popped up sort of automatically, out of the same spot. You know you have all the time, all the time till you die. And the melody itself... Take haste, search out to life before erased. You know you have all the time, all the time till you die. And the melody itself, the way it appeared, was crystal clear and very simple. I sort of heard it in my head as if it was like, twinkling you know and that's why on the original version of this song and actually on the modern one too you have this sort of tinker bell broken piano playing that tune up high because it's almost like a star that is twinkling in the night you know what i'm saying something that i've seen through that open window while i would smoke in this in the stairwell and i would look up to the stars, and I would think about life and about things, about, about life, about love, about death. So this melody... Take haste, sort out your life before erased. You know you have all the time, all the time till you die. It came out just like that, it was straightforward, it was simple and till you die these three notes they sort of define the melody the rest of the melody even though it's the last line same as the first two there was just a half tone take haste and it's very subtle very subtle and the way i've seen that i've heard it in my mind is that i wanted to sing it in a very quiet breathy voice, a little shaky, a little sort of chilly, you know, like because usually when I would smoke leaning over that windowsill in March, it's cold. So I would stand there and I would sort of hug myself and smoke this cigarette and breathe the smoke out into the air, into the cold night air. And it's sort of shivery, you know, it's shivery, it's cold. So, and that's how I sung it initially. It's sort of pitchy take haste Sort out to lie the far arrays You know you have all the time all the time till you die It's sort of like you are you're not singing it like take haste Sir out to light the fire raised. You're not singing it like that. You're singing it in a very breathy, quiet, calm tone. As if you're... It's like a prayer in the middle of the night because quite often that's what it would be like. In fact, while I would be standing there and I would be pouring my heart and soul into the night with all these thoughts and whispering, talking to myself, it would be almost like a prayer. It would be very intimate. So that's why... Sort out is the way it is. And let's go through the lyrics. The first verse exactly describes that window. It describes me smoking at that window. So it says, I open my eyes into the dark of a bleak night. I open the window and enjoy the wind touching my cheeks. I bet it comes from afar, but I can't figure out from where. It comes with a secret message that's dedicated only to me. There is always some sort of magic when you're alone. And you know, the entire building, everybody in these apartments are probably asleep already. So it's very quiet, it's real quiet. You can hear your heartbeat, and you can hear the noises coming from the streets. Because the window is open, so it's all this ambient big city noises that are flowing in. But they're sort of muffled. And these droplets of water that are falling off the roof, and they're falling from the fifth story and they're falling all the way down and you can hear them as they clang on the asphalt, in the pools and on the other roofs below. I open my eyes into the dark and a bleak night. I open the window. It's like synonymous, there is a parallel here. I open my eyes almost like I open the window, you know? Eyes are like windows. You know there's this saying about the eyes are the window to the soul and that's actually portrayed here, that's exactly the metaphor here. And enjoy the wind touching my cheeks. I bet it comes from afar, but I can't figure out from where. That's the mysterious thing about wind, you never know where does it come from. And that goes way back to an old poem by Alan Milne that I remember from when I was a little kid. And the poem was, No one can tell me, nobody knows, Where the wind comes from, and where the wind goes. It always fascinated me as a philosophical concept, you could say, because it's like dealing with the abyss. It's like dealing with eternity. The wind will be always there, even after you're gone. It always baffled me, since I was very little. So the wind, when there is wind that appears in my lyrics, when it appears on my songs, it quite often refers to these larger, bigger picture of things. It's about life, and death, and eternity. So, but I can figure out from where. It comes with a secret message that's dedicated only to me. It's like, you stand there, you smoke, you whisper words to yourself, you speak your heart into the wind, and the wind takes away your whisperings. If you see it from a somewhat allegorical standpoint, it's almost like you speak words into the void, you speak words into eternity, and the wind picks them up, and they float away, and they disperse, they dissolve into nothing. Or maybe they don't. What if they don't? What if these words that are carried out by the wind, someone else hears them? What if someone can hear my heartbeat in the night? What if someone can hear my deepest secrets? What if this wind can bring my thoughts to someone whom I would like to meet, whom I would like to love, who perhaps would love me. That's what this verse is about. And then there's the hook. Take haste, sort out your life before a race. You know you have all the time, all the time till you die. It's in quotation marks because this is the message that the wind brings me, right? It comes with a secret message that's dedicated only to me. Take haste, sort out your life before a race. So that's, allegedly, that's the message that the wind brings to me. And the wind makes me think. These lines that I should take haste and that I should sort out my life before I'm erased, before I'm dead, before I die. That I should know that the only time that I have is the time until I die. Then there is a second verse it says, It wipes the leaves off the ground and deletes the clouds high above. Speaking of wind, it brushes the dust away, the dust of those who are gone. Wind is very powerful. After all is said and done, after the last heartbeat is gone, after I become ashes or I become dust, the wind will still be there. As long as this planet exists, the wind will be still there. It's, it's eternal. And that's scary. It's very scary. It's existentially scary, if you think about it. And it's a very powerful force. So it wipes the leaves off the ground and deletes the clouds high above. It can clear the skies, it can can reveal the sun. You see what I'm getting at here? It can reveal the stars. And if you think of stars as ideas and dreams and aspirations, then stars are necessary because they can become guiding stars. And so you need the wind to clear the skies for you so that you can see the heavens clearly. It brushes the dust away, the dust of those who are gone, and at the same time, it brushes away those who are gone, the dust of those who are gone. It dries all my tears. That's what it also does, because if I stand there and I smoke into the night, and I quietly cry, then the wind does the job for me, and it dries out my tears. But again, it keeps me weeping inside. So this sense of that I'm dealing with something eternal and that I am, as a human being, that I'm nothing compared to this eternal timeline, that I'm a mere speck in the context of life, that is very difficult to contemplate, it's very difficult to come to terms with. And so it keeps me weeping inside, it pets my heart with a chill. It's a very chilly feeling, it's like you're cold inside because what do you want? You want to find that love. You need that love to warm you up, to bring fire into your veins, to bring fire into your heart, to carry you through life. And when, when you're looking for love and you don't have that love inside of you, it's pretty chilly. You have just the hope for love. You have hopes for that large, sunny, huge feeling, but you don't really have it inside of you. Or you just have embers that are left over from your previous relationship or your previous passions or love or whatever. So it pats my heart with a chill and then it whispers to me and then there's the hook again. Take haste, sort out your life before erased. You know you have all the time, all the time till you die. Then the hook repeats itself in the end and it repeats itself twice. And basically that's the song, that's the entire song. And now you can see and understand why is it such a sad song? Like in the beginning I said, it's quite the melancholic piece. It's a very slow track. Originally, back in 2008, I've arranged it, I've written it out, sort of as a trip-hop track, because that's how I heard it inside of me. I wanted to come up with a verse melody that would be versatile, that would be flexible, that would be sort of jazzy, bluesy, and at the same time, I wanted to embed all of that into a rather trip-hop beat with lush textures underneath with some beautiful chord progressions underneath, but at the same time I didn't want to complicate it too much, so I deliberately stuck to just a few chords because I was trying to keep it real simple. And now that we have dissected the lyrics and I've told you the backstory of this song, I think now we can get to the music analysis. So here we go with the music analysis. The song starts with quite a simple chord progression that is borrowed from the hook. What do we have here? First of all, the song is in the key of F minor, which is quite odd, because normally if you were composing a song on a guitar, you would do that probably in E minor or something like this, and I would have probably went for E minor if I had a guitar at the time, but I did not have a guitar. So I ended up with F minor, I don't know why, maybe because it felt like it's a very sad song and I've always associated the key of F minor because it has all these flats in it with a more darker, more melancholic and sad sound. You see what I'm saying? It's like it's deep blue in terms of color. That's how I see this key. It's deep blue, like navy blue, almost. So, F minor. D flat major, seven. major minus 7 then again back to f minor which is because of all the pads that are playing there it is a 7 and it is a 9 at the same time g flat major minus 7 d flat major 7 going into the first verse and the first verse goes like this F minor D flat major F minor again D flat major F minor a flat major G minor 7 C major so all of them are 7s basically. We have F minor 7 with a 9 that happens because in the arrangement there are some pads and something like that going on in the back. Then you have a D flat major 7. Again, F minor D flat major, then F minor again, then the chord chain changes a little bit, goes upwards. A flat major 7, down a little bit to G minor 7, C major, C major with added flavors. I don't exactly remember, does it have, I don't think it has this in it. And then, what's happening to the melody? As I said, I wanted to write a melody that is flexible, that is all over the place, that is not tied necessarily too strictly, that is not restrained by the groove. I open my eyes into the dark of a bleak night. I open the Does it goes up here back to the fifth and hangs here in a very dreamy, breathy way. Then there is the next line. in the melody and feel the wind touching my cheeks and feel the wind touching my cheeks and there is that's the point of the melody it sort of floats it's not tied to the rhythm necessarily it is like a free flow just like the wind and then it repeats itself So it's the same chord sequence and then we're going into the hook and here's the hook. is the little bridge to the next verse. basically the same as the first one with different lyrics, then there is the hook, and the hook again repeats itself, and of course there is a build-up, apparently in both versions of the song. In the original version it mildly builds up a little bit, mostly because of the backing vocal that sings up high there. I'm not going to show you that because that requires really, really some, well, not belting, but I would have to really warm up to sing that, so, but it's high. So that backing vocal gives some subtle climax and build up in the end of the original sort-out. And the same thing happens in on the modern version. But that's not all, because there is also a solo section, a piano solo section, which breaks the song a little bit apart and gives you, let's say, some time to reflect, to soak in the vibes of this song, which are very trip-hoppy and bluesy and somewhat jazzy, I think so there is this solo to be honest, I'm not really able to play the left hand and to play this solo. On the recording, on the modern recording, I had to learn the right hand and I had to separately record this piano solo, the way it was written out, the way it was programmed originally in 2008, so that was pretty damn tough, I'm telling you. But let's analyze the chord progression underneath that. So... Is a G minor it starts with a G minor which is a departure from F minor remember we're in the key of F minor so all of a sudden we're using the second and building a minor seven chord there then we're going into a B flat minor seven Then we're going into a D minor seven. They're all sevens, these chords. And the next chord, D flat major seven. Then we're in C minor seven. B flat minor G minor G flat major minus seven nine his health twice My songs on the sixth. I like to end it on a sixth uh, with the major chord there. So there is that major seven again, and this is the basic music analysis of this song. out is the fifth track on the I Tell You What album, on both versions of this album. It occupies the space between Fix and Kiss, which, if you remember from the previous episode, is sort of like a buoyant, upbeat, romantic, a little bit messy, groovy track. And then after that, there is this low of it. Almost like when, you, when I would come back from a date, I would get back home, and then after midnight I would be smoking there in the stairwell and I would be having all of these thoughts about life, death, and love and a lot of things. So Sort Out sits here for a reason on the fifth place after fixing Kiss and at the same time it precedes the next track which is called A and we'll be getting to that track on the next episode. Sort Out happens in the first half of the album because there is a lot of introspection here, there is a lot of self-reflection here, and there is a lot of thoughts about eternal things. I don't think that Sort Out would be appropriate somewhere in the end of the album. I think it's more appropriate to have it in the first half of it, especially with such framing embedded between "Fixing Kiss and the next one, which is Omitted. I think it makes perfect sense because then there is Omitted, then after that there is Home, which is another song about urban loneliness and about self-reflection there is a lot of that and then after that it crosses into the second part of the album which changes things up a little bit it's very subtle but it changes things a little bit so sort out i don't think that it would be appropriate to have it somewhere in the end i think that it's more appropriate to have it somewhere in the beginning and that's why it sits ultimately on the fifth position so guys this is Sort Out and the story and the background behind this song and how it was written. In terms of production, when it came to the modern remake, I just wanted to write it out in a more acoustic and more live format. That's why I've played my acoustic guitar, my Lilith, my acoustic baritone, and I've played my electric guitar, Tiger. I had to play them, so I think that the modern version of Sort Out sort of Swerved towards some blues vibes, more prominent blues, jazzy vibes, and perhaps some shoegaze, maybe some chill wave influences, something along those lines. At the time, when the original sort out was written, I was listening to telepop music, specifically the album called Angel Milk. I was a huge fan of that album, and quite often I would have it in my player. Also, another one, a big one, was The Fuzz. Defaz, as far as I remember, is a band from Germany, and they do acid jazz. So I was thinking along those lines, I wanted to make it darkish, with some interesting textures, I wanted to keep it very melodic and relatively simple. And that's basically how Sword Out was born. the, The modern version really does not deviate that much from the older original. It still sits in the same category, I believe, it still conveys the same vibe, only that I would say that it became sort of juicier because of the live instruments, because of the real uh, bass guitar there, because of the guitars, the acoustic guitar, the electric guitar, and because of live drums, which I have played. Also this time instead of programming uh, the piano, I've actually played it too. Took me a little while, a couple hours to learn this solo, but I've done this. And um, I think that there are some discrepancies as compared to the original programmed solo. But then again, come on. I mean, when you program things in musical software, when you write out MIDI text, it sounds perfect. It's always in line. But when you actually play that, it has some real phrasing. And I like it that way a lot more. So, on the modern version, the piano solo is a little crooked. It's, um, it's not perfect. It could have been better. Perhaps I missed a few notes. But I think it's better that way. It sounds more real. And this is where I'm going to wrap up this episode. Thank you very much for tuning in and checking out my podcast, for listening to my episodes. I really do appreciate this. Do not forget that I talk about a broader variety of topics on my other podcast, or rather, should I say, a YouTube show, And that show is called Cat Talk. Once again, when it gets a little warmer, right now in Kentucky, it's still not exactly that warm. But when it gets a little bit warmer, I think I'll start recording these podcast episodes from my back porch, just like I do with my Cat Talk show. And I think it will just give a more lively vibe in the background. I think the vibe is important, really. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for checking out my podcast. Thank you for following me i really do appreciate this and you will hear me on the next episode